You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to conference coverage highlights from ENDO, the 95th annual meeting of the Endocrine Society. The Endocrine Society is the world's oldest, largest, and most active organization devoted to research on hormones and the clinical practice of endocrinology. Introducing this program with the latest in endocrinology is Dr. William F. Young, Jr., Professor of Medicine and Chair of the Division of Endocrinology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Young is the immediate past president of the Endocrine Society. The most exciting science that I heard about at Endo 2013 related to the plenary presentation. And these were outstanding scientists from around the world presenting the latest science, and much of which had not been published. For example, there were some excellent presentations on the effects of bariatric surgery and why it really works. It turns out it's not just due to restrictive uh, effects of the bariatric surgery or malabsorptive effects of the bariatric surgery. And that's just one example of one of the presentations. Another presentation was the evolution of the Y chromosome and the fact that with time, the Y chromosome, what determines maleness, will slowly disappear. The Y chromosome has been degrading uh, over thousands of years and will continue to do so. Now we'll take you to the conference floor, where ReachMD senior reporter Art Marcassini interviewed global thought leaders in endocrinology. I am speaking with Dr. Sophie Jamal, who is an associate professor of medicine, division of endocrinology at Women's College Hospital in Toronto, Canada. Dr. Jamal presented bisphosphonates in renal disease here at this year's meeting. Welcome, Dr. Jamal. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. First question we'd like for you is to maybe give our audience a brief overview of what your presentation covered this year. Sure. So what I talked about this year was osteoporosis and chronic kidney disease. And both of those conditions occur as our population ages. And it's actually quite dramatic. By the time we're above 80 or so, half of us will have both chronic kidney disease and osteoporosis. So the issue really becomes twofold. How do we treat patients who have osteoporosis with chronic kidney disease? because often bisphosphonates, which are the commonly used medications for this condition, are contraindicated. And then the second thing that I talked about was really treatment with bisphosphonates for cancer-induced bone loss and how that can sometimes cause chronic kidney disease. What were probably the most important points that you'd like the audience to uh, take away from your talk? So I think there's a couple of issues. The first issue is that both osteoporosis and chronic kidney disease are common problems, so trying to ignore them is not really going to be appropriate. <laughs> the second issue is that there is some data in patients with chronic kidney disease that have been given bisphosphonates, and at least for the short term, in patients who are not yet on dialysis, the drugs appear to be safe and effective in terms of reducing fracture risk and improving bone density. The second thing is that if we are using bisphosphonates for cancer to prevent cancer-induced bone loss or metastatic disease, for example, these are patients that are often at risk for chronic kidney disease. We need to be cognizant of the fact that they may be on medications that are going to put them at risk for kidney disease. They may be dehydrated, so it's important to make sure that we correct that. And also, if they're getting intravenous medication, giving a slow infusion time may be helpful. But even in these patients, these medications can be safe and effective. What do you think that came out of the discussions and the presentation that the audience may or may not have known, you know, kind of previous to this? What, what came out of it? Yeah, so I think it's actually 
striking to know that as renal function decreases, your risk of fracture goes up quite dramatically. We've shown that with decreasing renal function, you have a twofold increased risk of hip fracture. The audience, I think, would be surprised to know that not all cases of fractures in patients with kidney disease are related to osteoporosis. Um, there's lots of other reasons why patients with chronic kidney disease have fractures. And so one part of it is absolutely osteoporosis, and there are some drugs that can be effective. But the other part is, why else are they breaking their bones? And that needs to be addressed. How do you see this type of information and work kind of moving forward in osteoporosis? I think there's two things. The first thing is that I think in otherwise healthy men and women who have impairment in renal function, there is data that at least with early impairments, stages three and four chronic kidney disease for the short term, bisphosphonates are not inappropriate. They're safe and can be effective. And by short term, I really mean two to three years. Okay. I think the other issue is that if we're thinking about further research, we need larger studies in patients with renal failure to know whether these drugs are safe and effective. Dr. Jamal, thank you for being with us today and sharing the information about your talk. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you. You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Highlights from Endo 2013. We are at the Endocrine Society's 95th Annual Meeting and Expo in San Francisco, California. This year's program covers exciting science and endocrinology from bench to bedside and promises to be one of the largest endocrine meetings ever held. These sessions and more are freely available at endosessions.org. I'm speaking with Dr. Heather Pattisall, who is Associate Professor at North Carolina State University, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Dr. Pattisall presented the impact of endocrine disruptors on puberty. Welcome, Dr. Pattisall. Thank you. Thank you for having me. First thing we'd like our listeners to be able to do is to hear a brief overview of your presentation here at the meeting. Well, so I'm interested in chemicals in the environment that may shift pubertal timing. And so some of these chemicals are man-made, things that we've introduced into the environment because they're leaching out of plastics or other household products. But there's also chemicals in the environment that are made by plants. So soy phytoestrogens is one that we focus on quite a bit. So if you have a high soy diet, then you're exposed to some of these chemicals. And so using a variety of animal models, we've shown that exposure to these chemicals during critical periods of development, most notably gestation and early life, can result in early puberty in females. So both chemicals that we make and chemicals that nature makes can accelerate puberty in females in our rodent models. What would you say would be the most important point that came out of your talk today that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, one that I would like to highlight is that animals that are maintained on a soy-rich diet, so these are animals that are getting exposed to high levels of phytoestrogen, consistently show early puberty. Moreover, when we look at these animals when they're older, they have behavioral changes, they have ovarian malformations, and they have irregular estrocycles. So it appears there's long-term reproductive consequences for these animals. And we're concerned about that because of the number of kids that are being reared on soy infant formula. And soy-based infant formula contains a very high density of these phytoestrogens. And so exposing these kids to those phytoestrogens during that critical period of development may have health consequences later. As we kind of move forward, where do you see this topic going uh, and what do you expect to be seeing as we go out two or three years down the road? Well, so there's a lot of interest in why puberty is advancing in girls. And that's probably a whole conflux of factors that are contributing to that, including nutrition, obesity, social factors in the environment. And something I highlighted in my talk is that there's a lot of gene by environment interactions that go on that influence pubertal timing, not just in humans, but in a whole flux of species, including apes and other primates. 
So clearly it's not only chemicals, there's other things, but we need to do a better job of understanding how these 85,000 plus chemicals lurking around in our environment might be influencing our health, particularly pubertal timing. And as a basic researcher, it was exciting to come to this meeting because I can get information from clinicians that are dealing with these kids that are facing early puberty and get a little bit more information about what they might be exposed to and which chemicals we need to take a closer look at. Was there any information that, that came out of the, the discussions at this meeting that the attendees probably didn't know before? Well, so I introduced some data from a new chemical that we're looking at called Firemaster 550. And this meeting is being held in, in California, which is great for the talking about flame retardants because California has some of the strictest standards in terms of flame retardant use in the country, and it's being revisited right now, largely because of concerns that these flame retardants have health consequences. And so we've shown that this new flame retardant can accelerate puberty in our female animals and introduced a host of other endocrine problems, including obesity and insulin resistance later in life. And so down the road, we're going to be trying to understand how this chemical might be affecting reproductive and endocrine health. Well, thank you, Dr. Patasol, for being with us today and sharing some of the information from your excellent talk. Well, thank you very much. We are at the Endocrine Society's 95th Annual Meeting and Expo in San Francisco, California. I'm happy to be speaking with Dr. Alex Stegnaro-Green, who will be presenting Thyroid Disease and Pregnancy Guidelines. Is consensus among endocrinologists, thyroidologists, and obstetricians possible? Dr. Stegnaro-Green is from George Washington School of Medicine, where he is the Professor of Medicine and Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Welcome to the show. Thank you. The first thing we'd like to do, Dr. Stegnaro-Green, is to have you give a brief overview of your presentation here at the meeting. My pleasure. Over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of new data that's been coming out on thyroid and pregnancy, showing correlations between thyroid disease with a variety of complications, including miscarriage, preterm delivery, decreased IQ, and the newborn children. Over the last 10 years, three different societies have come up with guidelines for thyroid and pregnancy. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology produced guidelines in 2002 and reaffirmed them in 2007. The Endocrine Society came out with guidelines in 2007 and new guidelines in 2012. And the American Thyroid Association came out with new guidelines in 2011. The purpose of my talk was to discuss the new data that's been coming out about thyroid and pregnancy, the guidelines that have been produced, and whether or not in the future there'll be the ability to have one set of guidelines that include all three associations. What do you feel is one of the most important points to come out of your talk that you'd like to have the audience remember? Probably one of the most important things is how quickly the research on thyroid disease and pregnancy is evolving. Over the last couple of years, we've got new data showing the relationship between subclinical hypothyroidism and miscarriage, subclinical hypothyroidism and preterm delivery, as well as changes related to the presence of thyroid antibodies and not only spontaneous miscarriage, but recurrent abortion. Overall, we've just developed a much deeper understanding that different types of thyroid abnormalities during pregnancy can result in negative impact on both the mother, the fetus, and the unborn child. Where do you see these guidelines going moving forward? 
My hope is that as we move forward, there will be a move to having one set of guidelines that will be present and available for all clinicians and patients who are interested. I think the American Thyroid Association and Endocrine Society have the possibility of putting those guidelines together as the guidelines that they produced are quite similar. Thank you, Dr. Stegnaro Green. We appreciate your time today. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to ReachMD. This has been conference coverage. Highlights of Endo, the 95th Annual Meeting of the Endocrine Society. To hear these sessions in their entirety and more from Endo 2013, please visit endosessions.org to access the free webcasts. And if you missed any of this program, please go to ReachMD.com or the ReachMD Medical Radio app to download this podcast today.